Hey folks, my name is Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, we record the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring stories about progress. In what ways are we better off now than in the past? Are there ways that we are worse off? What is the ideal future? How do we build it? Join us as we explore these questions with some of the brightest minds in the world. Hey folks, today on the podcast we have David Friedman. David holds a PhD in physics from the University of Chicago, and he's chiefly known for his scholarly contributions to economics and law. He's the author of five books of nonfiction, as well as two novels. David, how are you doing today? Up to three novels now, whenever three your novels. is out of date. It's a little bit out of date. And I did see there was a new one. Very slowly on a fourth, which hasn't gotten very far yet. That is that's super cool. That's that's awesome. Um, how's the jump from fiction from nonfiction to fiction been? Uh, it was fun. I'm a much more successful nonfiction author. Uh, there are clearly a number of people in the field who are much better writers than I am, uh, who I enjoy reading. But I think my novels are enough different from anybody else's that at least for people who share some of my tastes. Uh, they are worth the, 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 the work of writing. And on the whole, it's rather fun, fun writing. It's, it, it's less straightforward than nonfiction, so to speak, so that uh, it sometimes stalls for you know, a long period of time. And I, I, I got into it originally as a way of falling asleep. Oh, cool. uh, I concluded that daydreaming is a poor way of falling asleep because when you're daydreaming, you're the protagonist of the story you're imagining and that gets you too closely involved to drift off and it occurred to me that if instead I tried plotting a novel in my head that I would have enough distance and it worked pretty well and so I plotted parts of about several different vaguely related novels and eventually got all of one of them in my head and house rules at the time were that when I put one of the two kids to bed I told that made up and told them three stories it was what i think of as extruded fantasy product Very and cool. i mentioned to my daughter who was i don't know 10 or 11 or something at that time that i had this novel in my head and you said why don't you tell me that instead so i did and the trouble with telling stories to my daughter was that she remembered them better than i did <laughs> so i would have a, these long series of stories with the same characters in them and I would get them into some difficult situation and she would say, but daddy, that magic item that they got three months ago, that'll get them out of it. So this time, every evening when I finished telling the story to, to Becca, I went on my computer and wrote an outline of the story I had told. And the result was that by the time I finished, I had a full outline of the novel and I decided to see how it would work if I wrote it. So I wrote the final scene and really liked it. And then I spent maybe a month or two writing what ended up as the first draft of my first novel. So that was sort of a different story for how a novel got written, but it's, it's a true story and I think an entertaining one. Uh, that was Harold, which actually got published commercially by Bain uh, after I spent a long time trying to get other people to publish it. Uh, it didn't do very well. Uh, so Bain wasn't interested in another and uh, my I then I had two different ideas, one of which was a sequel to that novel, which I've written a little of, but have never completed. And the other was an entirely different one. And I discussed them with my friend, Werner Vinja, 
who oh, is very a cool. very successful science fiction writer, much again, a much better writer than I am. And he thought that the new idea sounded much more interesting. So on that evidence, I wrote it. That was my second novel, Salamander, uh, which I think I did it. I'm not sure I would say I like it better, but I think I did a better job on it because I had some, some practice. Uh, that one is shortly going to be available as an audiobook. Uh, somebody got in touch with me a while ago and said that he would like to, to record it. He said he had been reading it to his nieces and they enjoyed it. And that surprised me a little because it's not really aimed at children, although I think it's a book that young people could enjoy. And I was a little worried at first that this was some kind of a scam and he wanted me to pay him <laughs> to record it. But no, he was perfectly willing to do it in exchange for half of the revenue from the audiobook. That cost right. me nothing. I wasn't yeah. planning to do it myself anyway, because I didn't think it would sell very well because the book hadn't sold all that well. He's now finished doing it. It's at Audible and they're supposed to be checking over it. So probably in a couple of weeks, Salamander will be available as an audiobook. Uh, my first novel is available as an audiobook read by me, but I think this person who had done other audiobooks really did a better job than I did. Uh, it was quite interesting, sort of some of the, things he did with accents, which had not really occurred to me uh, in order to signal differences among people and similarities among people when they have related accents and things like that. So anyway, I, I, I had a lot of fun. I went over all the chapters to make sure there were no mistakes and found a few mistakes. And I enjoyed that. It was, uh, it was quite nice listening to my own words in somebody else's voice. So, so that's been interesting. I've done audiobooks of almost all my nonfiction, those I read myself. Uh, the only exception, I think, is my price theory textbook, because that's an econ textbook. It's got a lot of figures in it, and you really can't follow it very well without them. Uh, right. And I've got a, my book Hidden Order is intended as the equivalent of a price theory textbook for people who want to teach themselves economics. So that has some figures. And I, if you get the audiobook, you're supposed to also get a PDF showing the figures, but it's obviously not all that convenient if you're driving a car, you're not <laughs> going to Yeah. Right. So, so, but hopefully most of it, I think works without the figures. So I think that, but most of my other books don't really depend on that sort of thing. So, so those ones I did audiobooks and, and they've actually done pretty well. I was surprised. Uh, I think I did the first one because a very nice lady who's a fan of mine had done a cover for one of my self-published books. And she had said that she really thought that Machinery of Freedom ought to be available as an audiobook. So I did that in a sense for her. But in fact, it sold moderately well. And uh, it's an awful lot less work recording a book than writing one. <laughs> so it's, you know, what, a month or two, I suppose. Uh, so I ended up doing all of them and probably... Uh, I'm currently working, it occurred to me a while ago that I'd sort of run out of new ideas to, to write books about, but it then occurred to me that I had 15 years of ideas in my blog. Right, right. So I went through all of my back blog posts, sorted them in terms of topic, I think I ended up with about 20 different topics, and I'm now in the process of converting that into one or more books, the the I haven't gotten very far. People are sufficiently curious. I've webbed the drafts of most of what I've done so far. My first, I'm really thinking of it as sections. That is, each section is coming out of a bunch of blog posts on some related topic and with a good deal of new writing in the process, of course. But, 
but but still I'm sort of parasitizing my own past work, which seemed to me an efficient thing to do since I didn't have any new new things I wanted to write about. Uh, so that's that's my current writing project. Uh, and at this point, the section I'm doing is on libertarianism uh, with a number of different parts of it. Uh, actually working on a chapter on how to promote libertarianism, which came out of a number of related blog posts. But I've got a lot of other topics that that one of the big sections, I think, is going to be on the question of how you figure out what's true, because cool. that's a problem we all face. Uh, I can give point out to lots of examples, typically in sort of politically controversial things, where, anyway, as I said, so I'm currently uh, working on this, and my guess is that there's probably enough material for two or three books, I'll see. But right. uh, I decided many years ago uh, to spend two hours a day, seven days a week on writing. And the basic reason is that as my life has turned out, there isn't a whole lot I have to do. That for the last, for, for 20 some years, I was a half-time full professor at a law school. I taught one semester on, one semester off because I'm not a lawyer. I don't have the background for teaching the standard courses. So I taught some interesting courses they really hired me to get economic analysis of law, but then I invented other courses, some of which turned into books eventually, two or three of them did. Uh, and, but, it, but it was too easy to sort of spend all my time eating lotus, right. uh, doing nothing. And I found that I felt stale if I did that. And now I'm retired, so I have even fewer constraints on it. So I committed myself to two hours a day, seven days a week, working on any writing project, uh, I don't generally count blog posts, but anything beyond blog posts counts. And I may decide to count a blog post if it's going to go into the new book. That uh, I've, I'm thinking of doing a blog in defense of Thomas Malthus. Oh, interesting, <laughs> really? Malthus, I think, is badly misrepresented by both sides of the population dispute. That they don't really oh, follow what his argument was. And it was an ingenious argument. I don't think it was, it probably was wrong. But what happened since is not really proof that it was wrong because what he was imagining was a rate of population increase essentially at the biological maximum. That the figure he gave was a 25 year doubling time. And in fact, with modern medicine, it would be even shorter than that. We know that because the Amish have traditional birth rates and modern medicine and their population double time is about 20 years and that's despite the fact that they lose about 10 percent of the of each generation who don't stay in the church so maybe a little less than 20 years total but if you actually look at the numbers i was just looking up the numbers for in, in the process of checking this and in the century from 1800 to 1900 i think the population of england goes up something like three or four fold on Malthus's assumptions, it would have gone up two, four, eight, sixteen times. Oh wow! So, so we don't know whether whether they could have fed that number of people. All right. His basic argument is not there's going to be a catastrophe. His basic argument is things can never get a whole lot better because they were because why are people willing to marry late, willing in various ways to give up the pleasures of sex and marriage because it's expensive to produce children. That's his basic argument, is that in a stable society, things have to be bad enough for most people 
so that having as many children as they could have is a serious cost and therefore they don't, they don't do it. And there are problems in that argument. In particular, he doesn't seem to have allowed for contraception. Uh, he, he's, as far as I can tell, he is always assuming that not keeping down the birth rate means having less sex. And he's arguing with some utopians, uh, Condorcet and Godwin, I think, who seem to have very optimistic views. Condorcet thinks that the human lifespan is indefinitely extensible. As progress goes on, you know, we'll make it 100, 200, 300. Maybe it'll happen. I hope it'll happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And there's not much evidence for it. So anyway, I've, I've been rereading the essay on population, which is Malthus's, Malthus's famous work. Uh, and it's quite, quite fun to read. Uh, it's not stupid. Uh, and so I may be doing a blog post on that. And if I do that, I may count that as writing because it may be something that I'll plan to put into the book eventually, because I think it's quite interesting uh, anyway. But it's not, he isn't arguing that population brings catastrophe. He's arguing that the potential of population growth holds down how good things can be. That's his basic gotcha. claim. And things have gotten a lot better since then, but, and yet, you know, we've, we haven't been held down, but on the other hand, they haven't gotten good enough to meet his requirement. And it's not clear, it isn't clear how much better he would have counted as within the possible range. Anyway, it's, that's a digression, but it's an example of the sort of thing. I, I, li I like having a blog because it means that whenever I have some interesting idea, there's something to do with it. You know, right. most of the time I'm not going to write a book tomorrow about that idea. I'm probably not, I'm not teaching classes. I might possibly give a talk about it. I gave a talk a couple of days ago uh, to a law school group over the internet in which I, it ended up as a new talk. That is, I tend to have like a, at any given time, like six or eight standard talks I give. And this one sort of started out as though it could have been one of them. And then I realized that in under current circumstances, 18th century England was actually quite relevant to current political controversies. Uh, and so I turned it into a talk about that. That was because the, there's this slogan about defunding the police. And the people who say that haven't really thought about what they mean. But England in the 18th century didn't have police. All right, the police are a 19th century invention in England. So how did that system work? You know, how did they solve the problems it raised? What issues does it raise? And, and that turns out to be an interesting subject, which is uh, furthermore, the, that same system had institutions that are relevant to the current controversy of how you control police. Right. Because one of the current issues is the idea uh, of uh, immunity. The idea which, as the courts seem to interpret now, says that police are only civilly liable for doing things they don't have a constitutional right to do if it was entirely obvious to them they didn't have a constitutional right to do. And <clears throat> one of the problems is that that means that until a court has ruled on almost precisely the same issue, the policeman can always claim, well, I, you know, I, it wasn't clear, I didn't know. Uh, in 18th century England, uh, criminal prosecution was private. Right, and that, that's Men actually one of the questions I had for you. Police. And in fact, there is a case. There was a fascinating character by the name of James, James, I think, Wilkes, who was the person, John Wilkes, 
he's the person who John Wilkes Booth was named after. Oh, wow. He was, he's also the person who Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania is named after. Really? He was a radical journalist politician in 18th century England, who in effect fought this long war with the King of England. Uh, and he affected actually America in a number of different ways. That would be another longer story. But at one, at various points in his career, he's a journalist, he's an outlaw in Europe because he'll be arrested if he's come back to England. He's a prisoner in the tower. He's elected to parliament and the house refuses to seat him and have wow. the, run the election again and he wins again and they refuse to seat him. And they run the election a third time and he wins again and they seat the person who comes in second. Oh my God. And he's later Lord Mayor of London. So very interesting, wow. colorful character. Uh, he gets described as the ugliest man in, in, in England, but he claims at various points that in the competition for a woman's favors, he can defeat the handsomest man in England given two hours leave. There are different versions of the story. <laughs> uh, so he was sort of a character in lots of different ways. But anyway, at one point, Wilkes is in prison in, 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 in London and his supporters are demonstrating in front of the prison. And the authorities get worried about a riot and they call out the troops and the troops open fire on the demonstrators and kill several of them. At which point, <coughs> Wilkes people <coughs> charge the soldiers who fired and the magistrate who gave the order with murder. Oh, wow. And the soldiers disappear. They sort of vanish. We don't know what happened to them. But the magistrate gets tried and he's acquitted, but he doesn't have to be acquitted. This is in a London court and the Londoners generally are pro-Wilts. Uh, so that's an interesting approach to the problem of how do you discipline law enforcement by making them, subjecting them to the ordinary law. And the, in our system, tort law is privately prosecuted. So in principle, tort law is an instrument, but the current interpretation of immunity makes it a less good instrument than it should be. Now in 18th century England, the problem they, in principle, is that the king could pardon people. So if they had convicted the magistrate, the king would probably have pardoned him. But at least in theory, there was a way around that. Didn't, not a very workable way, but there was a legal action that still survived in English law in the 18th century called the indictment, called the appeal of felony, uh, felony. And the appeal of felony was an entirely private criminal case, all right? An ordinary criminal case was privately prosecuted, but the case was Rex v. Smith, the King versus Smith. It was the King's case, which meant the King could pardon Smith if he got convicted. And appeal of felony was a private case. It was Jones v. Smith. And Blackstone, who's the great 18th century authority, says in commenting on this, at that time, more or less obsolete action, that if you get a conviction, the king can no more pardon the defendant than he can cancel a tort verdict because he's not a party to the case. So there's a different case where you've got two men who commit murder pretty clearly. They're convicted of murder. Their sister is the mistress of some, hot, some, some very influential nobleman. And apparently because of their influence, the king pardons the murderers. And some of, I think again, Wilkites uh, attempt a appeal of felony against the murderers. They, they, they aren't able to succeed. It was, Blackstone basically says this is an obsolete form. It isn't really workable very much, but in, on paper, at least it still existed. So that raises 
again, the whole issue of to what degree you can legal, use a legal system to control the people who are enforcing it. The, one of my, my most recent nonfiction books is legal systems very different from ours. And I have a long chapter on 18th century England as, lots, as well as lots of others. Uh, turns out another system which like 18th century England has criminal law that's privately prosecuted is Periclean Athens, another very famous society. But in any case, uh, the, one of the chapters, the, my, my legal systems book has two kinds of chapters, what I think of as system chapters and thread chapters. And the system chapter tries to describe and make sense of some legal system at some time in this place. There are, I think, 13 of them covered. And a thread chapter tries to take some issue that runs through multiple legal systems and understand it. And one of the issues is who guards the guardians? How do you enforce legal rules on the people who are enforcing it, who are enforcing the rules? And this is one of the interesting approaches to solving that problem. So anyway, so, so, I, so I ended up doing a talk for some law school students, which was about 18th century England from that perspective, including the, the issue of the appeal of felony and the private prosecution of a magistrate. Uh, you know, think of, 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 imagine in our present system that it's the mayor who tells the police to do something. In principle, he can be charged with murder. Now, of course, in principle, he can under our system too, but the problem is it's the government that has to do the charging. Right. There, are, there are multiple cases in, 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 you, in the US history where somebody committed what was, I think, very clearly a criminal act, in one case, first degree murder, and was never charged with any crime. The, case, wow. the murder case I'm thinking of was back when I was a graduate student at Chicago, so I was paying attention to it, was a Black Panther shooting that basically a group of Chicago policemen come to a apartment at night within which a bunch of Black Panthers are sleeping, including one very influential one who they pretty clearly wanted to get. They open fire through the walls of the apartment. They claim that they were fired at first, but apparently there's no evidence to support that and quite a lot of evidence that it wasn't true. They kill two people. That's first degree murder. None of, no one is ever charged with a crime. The, the, one of the people in the chain of command, not them, uh, is charged with, I think basically, uh, lying about what happened, something like something of that sort and is acquitted. But the survivors sue and they collect a sizable civil judgment from the city, state, and, and county uh, governments. So that's a case where the criminal law is impotent because criminal prosecution in our system is by the state, uh, but civil law is of some use. And I guess the, the latest case, which is much less shocking, but still pretty striking, is that as you may remember a few years ago, the director of national intelligence was asked it in, 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 in Congress uh, whether the it was NSA or the government in general collected any sort of information on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans. And he said, no, and he was lying that, that, that we, we, we now know, and he, he has not since denied it, that they were collecting not the content of phone calls, but the who, who called whom information, uh, metadata, the metadata on most of the population. So that was perjury. Perjury is a criminal act. He's never been charged with perjury. Uh, so anyway, 
So that, that's a general, a general limit of our legal system. And what you do about it is not entirely clear. You have to worry about that in a privately prosecuted system that you may get people prosecuted by as harassment as it were, rather than for a legal case. It's pretty clear if you look at Pericles in Athens that one of the incentives to prosecute somebody for a crime was that he was a political enemy and mm. you wanted to get him. Uh, and, uh, there's an actual case, I don't, I don't remember enough of the details of it, but where that's clearly what's happening. Uh, another incentive is that in order to have a privately prosecuted system works, there's gotta be some incentive to prosecute people. All right, well, in our tort system, the incentive is tort damages. Well, but that means you have an incentive to go after deep pockets, to sue on some case where if you win, you'll get a lot of money and you'll probably lose, but they'll settle out of court instead. So there, there are problems with private prosecution as well. I mean, that's, that's part of what I, I discuss in the, in the book and elsewhere, but it does have uh, some real advantages as a way of making sure that the government is itself subject to the laws that it makes. Uh, so hold, freeze for just a moment if you can, because I'm getting messages and I don't know what they are and I'd better check just to yeah, see. Yeah, go right ahead. Probably. Uh, right. Nothing urgent. Uh, one result of uh, the COVID is doing a whole lot of things uh, at a distance, not just this interview, but our grocery shopping is all done <laughs> online or, or by instant messages or things of this sort. And nowadays, I've uh, at the point when the COVID started to look seriously in mid-March, I was on a speaking trip in Europe. Oh, wow. And my younger son uh, argued by email that I should quit and come home. And my initial initiative was not to do so, but I eventually concluded that he was right. And I was wrong. So I canceled the last two talks, which I, one of which I wouldn't have been able to give as it turns out, because they checked. Republic uh, closed its border like a day or so before I was supposed to fly to Prague to give a talk uh, and flew home. And we've been quarantining ever since, since mid-March. So with almost, almost total quarantine. That's good. Good to be I safe. I've been farther than 10 feet from my own property other than in a car only once. And that was for some medical things. Smart, smart. So, so, so. Well, it's not clear that you have to. But as you probably yes. know, the risks depend a whole lot on age. That's right. It, it really does. Yeah, my uh, my mom's a uh, ear, nose, and throat physician, and she innovate she's innovated a few COVID patients. And you know, if you're overweight or you're old, it seems to be much worse. Yeah, roughly speaking, the the data may be wrong because apparently the cure the the the, the, the mortality rate is going down as they learn more about it. But the, on, on the current such figures we've got, if I get it, I've got about a 5% chance of dying. If you get it, you've got maybe one chance in a thousand of dying, depending on just how old you are and how healthy you are. Yeah. So, so it is sensible for me to be careful and for you to be much less careful unless there are old people you're close to who you don't want right. to transmit it to, which is Definitely. why my adult kids who are not at much risk have nonetheless been quarantining too. Smart, smart. So, um, so Quinn, I know you had a few questions. Is there one you'd like uh, to? Yeah, I had uh, several. There's actually one I, I forgot to forward ahead of time. Um, 
I've read quite a lot of your uh, discussions with other people online, sometimes about contentious topics. And something sort of stood out to me over time. Um, I'm not sure I can get exactly specified. You seem to be really good at knowing how much charity to extend. Like if I, when I talk with people, if I assume what they're saying makes sense and they're not making any mistakes, I can always find an interpretation. But that usually when they are making mistakes, it doesn't end up being a productive discussion. I've never felt like you were being unfair to someone straw man and do you know anything about how you do that i mean how you decide when i don't to say, think i do i don't think i do i think i had the enormous advantage of being brought up by my parents and therefore being used to thinking of sort of honest rational argument is the normal thing and everything else is so that in there there are disadvantages of that that is to say at various points I've been sort of shocked and surprised when it became clear, at least to me, that somebody was not honest. Uh, one, of, one of the chapters that I've more or less finished at this point is mainly about uh, another prominent libertarian intellectual who, as far as I can tell, did not care very much whether the arguments he offered were true or not, as long as they reached what he thought was a true conclusion. Uh, and I find that sort of disturbing. Um, but no, I think, I think most of the, I really don't know that it, that is an awful lot of this stuff you do by feel and my working assumption of the people I'm arguing with are honest. Uh, and I think that's the right working assumption to make. And usually if they aren't, you'll figure it out. Uh, but I'm trying to think, cause there, I'm not sure I, that I can remember very many interactions on Slate Star Codex or anywhere else where I, where I didn't end up with that. That is, uh, where there, there were times when I concluded that somebody was not very smart uh, or one possibility always is that the person is being perfectly rational, but he has different priors than I do. And that, you know, if I, if I think about, for example, one of my favorite people on Slate Star Codex is Plummer. And Plummer, I think, has a badly distorted view of the world. And he has a badly distorted view of the world, at least in part, because he grew up in a particular area. He spent all of his life in that area in particular sort of niches, as it were. And he therefore naturally enough generalizes from what things are like in his part of the Bay Area to the rest of the world. And that generalization is not very accurate, but he's obviously, uh, I think it's pretty obvious, he's intelligent, he reads a lot, he's an honest, Man, he's a nice guy. I, you know, I like interacting with him online. I'd like to, I've, you know, tried to persuade him to come down for, to, to have dinner with us at the point when we didn't have COVID, and so far he was never, was never willing to do that. Uh, so, and that's part of part of what's nice about Slate Star Codex, is yes. that you've got such a range of people, and most of them, I mean, I can't. I'm sure there must have been a couple of people on Slate Star Codex who, at some point, I concluded were dishonest, but but certainly very, very few. Uh, and there are more people who I conclude just aren't following an argument. Uh, and then there are ones who, I, I, think there are, I think I've even persuaded a few people to the extent, I think at least on the climate issue, that some people have gone from obviously warming is a terrible threat to I'm not really sure whether warming is a terrible threat or not, which I think is- Yes. I, at one point I had the occasion um, in office hours, not in 
class, so it changes it a little bit, to quote your uh, two different definitions of climate science denial to a college professor of mine. And uh, she appreciated that. Yeah. Where one of them denied that warming is happening and the other denied the implications of how bad it's likely to be. And they're in yeah. opposite political camps. Yeah. Yes. But 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 in general, I mean that that's on the other hand, I should say uh, some years ago, uh, my younger son persuaded me that the custom of giving up something for Lent was a useful custom. And so that year I gave up arguing climate issues on Facebook for Lent <laughs> and I've never gone back. <laughs> it's and, which is the part, of, part of the point of the custom, of course. And part of the reason was that I realized thinking about it, that I had met almost nobody in a couple of years of arguing on Facebook who was worth arguing with. That is, I think there were maybe two people or three people in that time. And that almost everybody on both sides of the argument did not understand what the greenhouse effect was. <laughs> that, that that became, there was a particular discussion where, where I think I had pointed out a YouTube uh, video, which purports to show a uh, kid, I don't know, maybe high school, maybe even young high school kid doing an experiment that proves the greenhouse effect. And it only works if you don't understand what the greenhouse effect is. It's due to a misreading of it. And I should say that one of the sponsors of this video is the Cleveland Museum of Science, which I think is pretty shameful. Uh, but, and I've seen different versions along these lines. This was a particular one. But as far as I could tell in the discussion, almost nobody in that discussion on either side of the argument actually understood it. That, that everybody thought of the greenhouse effect as a blanket. But of course, a blanket keeps things both cold and warm. Right, if you wrap ice right. cubes in a blanket, that they didn't realize that the critical thing was selective transparency. The fact that CO2 and water vapor are more transparent to the short wavelength light coming in from the sun than to the long wavelength light radiating up, radiating up from the earth. And that gives you a higher equilibrium temperature. Uh, well, the experiment, all the experiment was showing was that a, uh, soda jar full of CO2 absorbed more heat, more light, more warmed up faster when you shone a light on it than a soda jar filled with ordinary air. That, that sorry, two, two liter soda bottle, I think they were using. Uh, that doesn't tell you whether there's selective transparency and therefore it doesn't tell you if it's a greenhouse effect. So that was a case where I really did conclude that most of the people on the argument on either side didn't understand the issues, and we're doing it mainly for the pleasure of insulting each other. And I regard that as a base pleasure and as one that I do my best not to indulge in, and I'd rather not engage in arguments where that's what people are doing. But an awful lot of what's happening is that. Uh, but on Facebook in general, I sometimes find people who seem to be honest people uh, who, who disagree with me. Uh, I was having a reasonably civil exchange with one lady uh, on the question of this current Hunter Biden issue that's been getting a good deal of attention. And her view essentially was that it was obviously Russian disinformation. And my view was, well, that's not an impossible explanation, but there's no way of being sure it was. And I'm not sure if I got, I may have gotten through to her, that is to not to persuade her that she's wrong, but to persuade her that she shouldn't be so confident that she's right since we don't actually know. Uh, but uh, that's 
Now, I should say one of the reasons I know a fair amount about that case, I mentioned Data Secrets Locks, which is, I think somebody was referring to it as the refugee forum for people from Slate Star Codex. Uh, and that was one of the long threads. And one of the nice things, as is often the case in Slate Star Codex, is you have people on both sides of the argument. So yeah. you can, this is back before Slate Star Codex, I concluded that one of the nice things about Usenet was that at least one of the groups I was on, there was at least one intelligent and, uh, and, and civil conservative, such that on any conservative versus liberal argument, you could be pretty sure you had seen the best case for the conservative side because he would give it to you. Uh, and I think there were people on the other side of whom the same was true. This was a long time ago. I remember that particular case striking me. Uh, and that's very nice because it means you don't have to do all of the work of searching out everything for yourself. And similarly, in Slate Star Codex, it isn't always true, but as a general rule, and I think even on, on Data Secrets Locks, the odds are pretty good that you will see the best arguments or mo most of the best arguments for each side of some issue, and then you can evaluate them yourself rather than and, and much of the time, you know, somebody says something, I'm not sure if it's true, I don't have to look it up, I just wait. And some yes. on the other side will point out if there's a clear reason to think it's not true. That, do exactly just... the same thing. I've uh, explained it to my mother, um, who has seen enough of it to believe me about it. I had a moment with that same college professor where I realized I couldn't explain. I was way more confident than I should have been because I had read to the end of the thread and there were a thousand comments on that thread. And if it had been wrong, someone would have pointed it out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, you know, you, you there are no certain methods uh, that, as I think I was saying, I think, I think one of the sizable sections of the book I'm working on will be on how you figure out what's true. And sort of the argument I've been making along for a long time, which is not the same as this point, is that the skill that we need and are not trained to have is the skill of evaluating sources of information on internal evidence. Uh, so to take a simple example, the very fact that that woman was certain that her interpretation was right is a reason not to believe her. Yes. Uh, because it rarely, you know, there are cases where you can be certain. Um, there's some things I'm pretty sure of, but as a general rule, that's not the right response to a complicated world. Uh, but more generally, one of the virtues of the internet is that it's an unfiltered medium which means that if you're not brain dead, you realize that the fact that someone says something on the internet doesn't mean it's true. And you then have to train yourself to say, well, given that I'm rarely gonna do enough research to check what he's saying, to what extent by how he's saying it, can I figure out whether I should take him seriously? And is this somebody who clearly is, claims a conclusion and only discusses our, the arguments for that conclusion? Then you shouldn't take him seriously because there are always arguments, you know, there wouldn't be any disagreements if there are no arguments on the other side. So you want to see somebody where the best argument you could think of against his position he discusses. He may or may not convince you. That sounds like it's probably an honest person. Uh, with regard to media, I should say, uh, I concluded years ago that Huffington Post is better than most because it clearly has a bias, but there were a couple of cases where you had a situation where that bias was relevant and they were telling the truth. That, that the one I, one I remember, there was 
quite a while back, I had a series of blog posts where I was basically defending Republican candidates who were less nutty than they were claimed to be. And one, one of them was a little bit nutty anyway, but still not as <laughs> nutty as, as claimed. And one of them was somebody who the standard story that was being told was that he rejected the separation of church and state. And I went up on the Huffington Post and they had a video of the talk he gave in which was the basis for that claim. And it was clear, and I think they made it pretty clear, as I remember in the, in, in the story, that he wasn't saying that. He was saying that he thought that separation of church and state was misinterpreted, that it was interpreted as the stronger constraint that it ought to be, but not that it wasn't there. And I forget what the other one was, but I think there was at least one other case where the same thing was true. And, and uh, I should say, I actually knew Ariane Huffington long, long before she was Ariane oh, wow. Huffington. Uh, her, she was Ariana Stasinopoulos, if I remember correctly. She's Greek. And there was a Montpelier, I don't know if you know what the Montpelierin Society is, but it's an mm -hmm. old organization yep. of classical liberals. And I was at a Montpelierin meeting, God, 40 years ago or something like that, maybe more than that, in, I think, Scotland, somewhere in Britain. And she was one of the people there. And she was a attractive, somewhat flirtatious, obviously bright woman. Uh, she was essentially, what, a conservative feminist, maybe. Uh, she wrote a book, which I think is still available somewhere on, on, online, called huh, it's The Something Woman. I don't even remember the title, but it'd be interesting because I don't know how well it fits her current views. But, but anyway, so that made me partly interested in the Huffington Post because this is what this person had turned into, uh, which was interesting. Uh, but, but in any case, the 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 general skill is and, and and there's a sense in which our standard education anti-teaches it to some extent right, right. it's not not entirely true in college but if you think about the whole k through 12 context the normal situation is you have two sources of information the textbook and the teacher and you're supposed to believe them yes. that's a crazy way of learning to to make any sense <laughs> out of the world uh and and so from that, something, an idea I had a long time ago, I've never done it, I'm not in a position to do it, would be to have a course, probably at the high school level, where you pick some controversial issue. And it could be whether or not you believe in evolution, assuming you were in an area where a significant number of people didn't, which would be a requirement. Right. And you then have two teachers, one on each side of the issue, and two classes, and halfway through the quarter, you switch teachers. And you set up some easy context in which people from the two classes can argue with each other. Uh, because I think that uh, knowing whether evolution is true really isn't very important unless you're in one, some particular field where it matters. But knowing how to figure out whether it's true, knowing how to, how to make arguments and understanding, which is a very useful skill. And my impression is that human beings, perhaps especially kids, like to argue. That's right. And when you've got a position you want to argue for, that gives you sort of an incentive to look stuff up and to think stuff and so forth and so on. So, so it just struck me that, that, that you know, when people talk about whether or not <coughs> evolution should be a, a, an issue in the classroom, it would be a very useful issue. It was actually used so that people would be arguing with each other instead of just saying, well, this is the truth. You should believe it. And, you know, if you're going to say that, you pretty much have to go with evolution. But if you want to understand the ideas, you want to try to figure out what's wrong with your arguments against evolution. Right. The, so anyway, let's see. You, you would want to talk about future developments of which uh, 
I have one book on that subject, which is called Future Imperfect. That's right. And the title is a pun because future imperfect in grammar is the tense, which means happening over a period of time in the future. Uh, and the, but of course, I, the future is going to be imperfect. That That's is right. to say, part of the point of the book is that there are likely to be major changes. It is very hard to predict what they're going to be. And the changes could have both good and bad effects. Uh, and I have a chapter at the end, sort of one's first instinct should be that the effects will be good because what do the changes consist of? They consist of us learning how to do more things. Right. Uh, but then there are circumstances in which people learning how to do more things has bad effects because it may mean that it's easier to do bad things and it's harder to stop doing bad things. Uh, so anyway, so I have, so, so that's really the, the, I guess if there's a theme and I cover lots and lots of different topics there. Uh, and I guess probably the one I'm most interested in and got involved in first are the implications of encryption. Uh, this is, as you may know, Reason has just done a four part video thing on the cypherpunks and stuff related to that. And that was my world in a sense. I was on the cypherpunk mailing list for a while. I wasn't really very active in that, but I've been writing about that set of issues that far back. And in fact, I think my book Machinery of Freedom was on the cypherpunk recommended reading list. And I interacted a bit with Tim May, who was one of the main people there. Uh, and I like the way I like to put it is that he stole some ideas from me and then he reprocessed them and then I stole them back in the reprocessed version, uh, which is the way stuff's supposed to work. Uh, but, but it's clear that the technologies we have have the potential to give you a world with a level of privacy humans have never known uh, because you can use public key encryption to set things up in such a way that anybody in the world can send a message to anybody else in the world that nobody but the intended recipient can read. You, all you have to do is to have an adequate way, have everybody have a public key, private key pair and have some way of finding out what people's public key is. And once you know that, you can then do it. Uh, so that gives you a very high level of privacy. The, you can, in principle, have anonymous digital cash, although we don't have it yet. The, the Bitcoin is not anonymous. Uh, there are, as you may know, a couple of projects for anonymous uh, uh, digital currencies. Uh, my impression is that the people doing them don't really believe they can make it absolutely anonymous, but they can make it very hard to figure out who is spending, who is giving what money to whom. And so uh, the, uh, there is an older system for anonymous digital currency uh, by David Chaum, which is what I actually wrote about because I was writing with this stuff well before Bitcoin existed. And the problem with that is it requires an issuing bank. And the issuing bank has to be in some place sufficiently reputable so that you trust it not to walk off with the money. And places sufficiently reputable generally have governments which don't want anonymous digital currency to come into existence. Right. So that's why Chaumain currency never, never happened. Uh, although it, mathematically it certainly is, is, I think, better than any of the, of, the, of the other options. But anyway, you can set up a situation where you can make uh, where you can be have a reputation without telling anybody where you exist, what your real name is, or where you live, where you can 
engage in commercial activities online and keep it secret. So whether that'll all happen is not at all clear because you, you need to set up the relevant infrastructure. Lots of governments don't want you to do it. Uh, the NSA figured out this stuff probably even earlier than I did. I'm not sure, but certainly very early and I've been trying to block the development of the kind of crypto anarchy that Tim was, was arguing for. But nonetheless, that's one possible future and it's got downsides as well as upsides. Uh, in Future Imperfect, I have my business plan for Murder Incorporated, right. which takes advantage of these technologies to sell the service of killing people. And as far as I know, that is one of the possibilities implicit in those technologies. Uh, other important technologies, the one of most interest to me at the moment is slowing, stopping, or reversing aging. That I'm 75, judging by my parents, I've got about another 20 years. I'm really lucky, 25 years. I'd like a lot more than that. I've still got lots of interesting things to do. Uh, so I'm hoping uh, that we find enough, we make enough progress so that I'm still alive when it becomes possible to reverse the effects of aging. Uh, that's sort of the ideal, alive and, 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 and intellect, mentally functional. Uh, yeah. that's, and, that's David, are, are you are you bullish or on that right at, at this point? It's tough for me to evaluate the. Uh, the answer is extension. I'm bullish on it's happening in time for my kids. Gotcha. I think it could happen in time for me. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's things, but the odds are against, unfortunately. Gotcha. Uh, and once in a while, I see something that looks like a positive sign, and then I feel maybe maybe I am going to make it after all. Uh, I actually had there. There's a company, pretty reputable company that sells a, a supplement that I take. And they, a while ago, started offering you a genetic test of biomarkers of aging. Interesting. So I did it. And they claim that I'm 10 years younger than I ought to be. Now, I don't know if that's due to their supplement or if that's just <laughs> because I happen to be lucky in the genetic lottery. And I also don't know if it's true, because it might well be that the biomarkers uh, are not a perfect measure. And then maybe this is a case where, you know, it's like heating the house by putting a match under the thermostat, uh, right. or under the thermometer doesn't work very well. But in any case, uh, so I have hopes, but, but I'm not, I'm not. And, you know, my parents and at least one uncle lived very long that is did very well that's, in terms of current things. But anyway, but, but, but the interesting intellectual question, aside from the fact that I would like it, that problem to be solved, and I think the odds are pretty good for both of you, uh, the interesting question is what would the world be like with that? Right. So I spent some time trying to imagine that world. Uh, and there are a bunch of different issues. There's one issue is if you're going to live for an unlimited length of time, what do you do? Do you sort of strategy A is you make enough money to retire for retire on by say 65 and you then live a life of leisure forever. And that version doesn't attract me very much because in fact, I can live a life of leisure now and I don't choose to. Right. I'd rather spend, I, I, I like having a lot of leisure, uh, but I also like having, spending some time writing books and giving talks and stuff of that sort. Uh, another possibility is you just keep doing the same things forever. Uh, right. there's, there's somebody has a science fiction story somewhere where you have somebody who by some natural genetic accident is immortal and he's like 2000 years old or something. And someone asks him, you know, 
you know, why aren't you rich? Why didn't you just, you know, save some money early on? Because yeah, you know, people like me, I'm he's sort of an ordinary, I think he maybe is a Neanderthal or something, but he's sort of an, sort of comes across as sort of a reasonable working class kind of guy. You don't save money, you know, you just uh, and of course, if you, as people pointed out, I think on Slate Star Codex and elsewhere, if you really want that life, you can get it now. That is to say, if you choose to earn as much money as possible and spend as little money as possible, uh, you can probably retire at, I don't know, 45, 50 yeah, on a tolerable Surprisingly level. fast. Very few people choose to do that. That's right. Uh, and the benefits of, are longer if, you're, if you then get to be retired for 200 years, but, but it's still the same same kind of issue. But a different question is, suppose you're going to keep working and you keep doing the same thing. All right, that it's sort of a little tempting to say, well, you know, being an economist was a lot of fun, but maybe I should be a novelist instead. That, right. you know, one of my reactions, I when I read a book by somebody who's much better than I am, is to wonder, could I be that good? If I had started, if, you know, if my main intellectual, my, my son is an aspiring novelist and he's a better, better novelist than I am, I think. Uh, if I had been in his situation, if, if from, say, age 18 or something, my main interest was writing fiction and learning as much as I could about writing fiction. He thinks about it much more than I do. Uh, could I be as good as somebody like C.J. Cherry, who was the particular person I was reading and thinking that she's one of my favorite science fiction writers? I don't know. But with an extra couple of hundred years, it would be tempting to try. That's uh, right. And similar for other fields, computer programming, for example. I did some programming a long time ago. I wrote three different programs for teaching economics to go with my price theory textbook. And it was fun. It's clear that sort of computer programming is an inherently enjoyable and rewarding activity, that people like building machines. If you build a physical machine, 98% of your effort is getting things to fit together is the mechanic, the, the fact that, that stuff doesn't do what you tell it to. Well, a computer program, it always does what you tell it to now. You still have to spend a lot of time deciding what you tell it to, to do, and you still have bugs and so forth. But in a certain sense, it's the ideal world if you like building stuff. And I've thought about it. You know, I've considered, I have a bunch of ideas for computer programs that I haven't written for teaching economics. Uh, well, if I had an extra century or so, maybe I would go back, learn one or two of the modern languages, which would itself be rather fun, I think, uh, and then try writing some things in them. That would be an interesting activity. Maybe I could, you know, people write all sorts of things for cell phones now, which are relatively simple. And, and maybe I could think up sort of some really neat game uh, that uh, not the kind of game that depends on huge amounts of input of artistic and stuff like that, but the kind of game, um, Tetris is the famous example, where you have one simple idea and you implement that idea and people find it a lot of fun. That would be a tempting thing to do. And, you know, I may still do it, but I think on the whole, I'm inclined to spend my time on what I know how to do, which is writing right. nonfiction of a certain sort. Uh, so anyway, so that's an interesting issue. Uh, a different issue, and one which is very important for predicting the future, is when you want to keep having kids. Right. right. Suppose I regard having produced children as a very strong, very definite positive in my life. The largest negative, I think, for me about being quarantined due to COVID is that I have not interacted with my granddaughter, who is about one year old, a little over one year old, for a fair number of months. 
And I actually did some calculations quite recently to figure out what was the risk of having her and her parents over, given that they are not quarantining nearly as tightly as we are. Right. And so I did some calculations, was fairly elaborate, which is also fun doing that kind of sort of back of the envelope calculations. And I concluded that the chance of any given instant that one of his parents was contagious was about one in 10,000. And I then said, well, all right, suppose they come over and the adults wear masks and we stay six feet apart. Uh, the, my, my granddaughter is not gonna wear a mask and I don't not gonna stay six feet away from her because part of the whole point of it is I wanna hug her right, exactly. uh, and interact with her. But the chance of catching it under those circumstances is pretty low. It's surely well under one in 10, maybe even one in a hundred. If I catch it, my chance of dying is well under one in 10. So I figured, so I then worked out the numbers and I concluded that the life expectancy cost to me of having them visit is probably a little under a second. And that's a price I'm willing to pay. <laughs> they oh, aren't, we haven't scheduled it yet, but they will in fact be coming over to visit sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but going back, then the question is, suppose my wife was again fertile and suppose I was reasonably sure that my sperm was not defective, which it may well be by this age, because you have various mutations and such creeping in, or don't even need to do it by the old technology, clone, do a clone or do some other, yeah. you know, if, if we've solved aging, we've made a lot of other progress in biology. So suppose I could produce children again, would I do it? Well, my case doesn't matter very much, but if most people would, that, that one of the things people worry about when you talk about uh, eliminating aging is what happens to the population. Right. And I think that people vastly exaggerate population problems, but there is some population in which it's a problem. So if you just assume that people stop dying, or die much, much less often, but don't keep having children, that is to say, each, each family, each person has one set of children and then they've done that, that was a lot of work, we can play with the grandchildren instead. Then you just get a linear increase in population. And my guess is that technological progress can handle that for quite a long time. Right. Uh, on the other hand, if the response is, well, that was really neat having children, let's do it again. Uh, then you get an exponential increase. And I'm not sure that, that we could, could, could put up successfully with that kind of uh, future. So, so that's one of the issues. Uh, and, but there are others. What? Uh, just before we move on. So what do you think, how does this interplay with, uh, and, and what do you think about secular stagnation, you know, Peter Thiel, um, Ross Douthat, the, you know, since the seventies, uh, how much do you think that plays into these things? And yeah, there, the there are a couple of different issues here. One of them is the argument of stagnation on the grounds that we've picked all the low-hanging fruit. And I think right. that's not very likely. I, think it, you're right. I can see enough technologies where if things went well, they could produce enormous benefits. Right. Uh, and artificial intelligence is one of them. Nanotechnology is one of them. Biotech uh, is, is another. And there are undoubtedly others that I'm not, I'm not thinking of. So I think that that's, that's probably not the case. On the other hand, I think that our particular culture, that is the US at present and maybe the US in Western Europe, is running into a sort of a clogging of the arteries problem. Uh, 
and there's a discussion, I think maybe by Oliver Williamson, I'm not sure, quite a long time ago, about why Germany and Japan did so well after World War II. And the argument is that you have a society which over time accumulates a lot of friction that you have interest groups, the interest groups don't want to lose out, so they make more and more restrictive rules, these rules prevent other things from happening, and you sort of get locked into the way you're now doing things. That if you lose a war on the scale in which Germany or Japan loses it, most of that gets destroyed and you're starting out with something like a blank slate. It's so from again. that standpoint, we may be in that situation. We may be in a situation where making a lot of progress is going to get harder and harder due to what are essentially political changes. And at the moment, the political situation is looking pretty grim. I don't see any plausible outcome of the election that's gonna happen that I'm gonna like. Uh, the least bad outcome, I think, is that one party gets the White House and the other party keeps at least one House of Congress because that limits the amount of damage that can be done. And to some extent, it's sort of looking long-term grim in two different senses. One of them is increasing partisanship across the board. And the other is that there really is no longer a political party that is even theoretically in favor of the free market. That right, for a long true. time, the Republicans were theoretically in favor of it, although when they got in power, they tended not to act that way very much. Um, but at this point, the, the Republicans they now are, are not in favor of the free market and the Democrats aren't in favor of the free market. So it looks as though maybe the sort of classical liberalism had a very long running time. It, it was sort of a very important uh, ideology for 150 years, maybe, but it may have run out of steam now uh, for not because it was wrong, but for the sort of reasons why religions change over time, as it were. Uh, I find wokeism a slightly scary fundamentalist religion, and that I may be exaggerating. It may, be, you know, new things often look looks both scarier and more more alive. More. Uh, I don't think Mark you are. Twain, I think, estimated that by I think 1920, the Christian Scientists would have a majority of Congress. He was extrapolating their early growth rate, uh, right. and I suspect a part of my worries about wokeism are along the same line of extrapolating too far. Uh, Mark Twain also has a wonderful put down of, of extrapolation where he, he uh, it's, it's I think in Corn Cone Opinions is one of his essays. And he's talking about the Mississippi River, that the Mississippi River according to him has been shrinking. And the reason it's been shrinking is that you have loops and eventually you cut off the loop. So, and he then says, well, you know, we, we, can, we, we, we have the numbers for how much it's shrunk in the last such and such a number of years. Well, just apply a little bit of science and we conclude that back in the early something or other's thing, the Mississippi River was 9,000 miles long and stuck out over the Gulf of Mexico like a fishing pool. Whereas by about March 17th of the year 2090, I'm making this up, I don't remember what the actual dates are, the Mississippi River will be down to 12 miles long and New Orleans and Cairo, Illinois will be getting together under one mayor and board of aldermen. It's not an exact quote, but that's basically the point of it. So he's having some fun with the risks of extrapolation. Twain is really pretty good on that sort of thing. Uh, but anyway, but, but I'm not terribly optimistic about my country at this point. 
though I may be wrong. On the other hand, it's a big world. So it right. may well be that things will gradually sort of grind to stasis in the US and maybe in parts of Western Europe, but maybe Czechia or maybe India may. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking for quite a while, quite a while is gonna be interesting about this century is watching the other old civilizations come back online. That there is a sense in which since what, maybe the 18th century, maybe a little before that, European civilization has been really all that matters very much. Right. And the first break in that was Japan. The first clear change in that situation was the Battle of Tsushima Straits when Japan and Russia weren't getting along very well. Uh, Russia took their Baltic fleet and sailed it halfway around the world to get it to the other end of, 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 of Eurasia and the Japanese sunk it. Yeah. Uh, and that's a point at which suddenly a non-European country looks as though it matters again. Right. Uh, and then uh, more recently, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, joined as it were that 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 group so you have another uh, different uh, civilization coming online and i am hoping that uh i hope the islamic civilization might and so far it's not looking very good but maybe it will uh but i think there's a significant chance that india will uh india has not done very well for itself in the 20th century unfortunately but i think things may be improving gradually uh, and there may well be places I don't know anything about. I mean, I don't know what's happening in all the countries in Africa, say. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if what we have happening is that what has been the leading civilization is gradually going into stasis, but other things pick up on that. And so that's my hope. Makes sense. Uh, I've been say saying a long time ago that one of the nice things about China is that it's different enough from the US so it will block different things. Yeah. And it's powerful enough so the U.S. can't make it block things we want blocked. Uh, and so since on the whole, I would I am in favor of technological progress. I recognize that that's a risky gamble, that it could have bad consequences. But on the whole, I think it's a good thing. And therefore, uh, and if you think about things like aging research, there are a lot of old people in the world. They control a lot of resources and a lot of political power, and most of them don't want to die. So I think it's going to be very, very hard, despite people's concern about population, it's going to be very hard to, to uniformly block aging research. Right. Uh, maybe it'll come out of China. That's all right. I don't care. Uh, as long as I get it. No matter it. where it comes from. Uh, yeah. And, and similarly for other things. I mean, similarly for nanotech, similarly right. for biotech and so forth. Uh, uh, so anyway, so I guess I'm moderately pessimistic about the U.S. at the moment. And again, if I wasn't old, I would be somewhat tempted to move. Uh, it looks as though there are two other countries where I could claim citizenship if I wanted to. Uh, Israel, of course, because uh, even on the narrow definition, I'm Jewish since my mother and her mother were ethnically Jewish. Uh, neither I nor my parents believed in the religion, although presumably my grandmother did, uh, probably both of my grandmothers. Uh, and it turns out, uh, my son discovered that the current position of Hungary is that if you have an ancestor, and I'm not sure exactly what the restrictions are, who was in what was then Hungary, which includes a good deal of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, including the parts of what's now the Ukraine that my 
paternal ancestors came from. I think it's the paternal, it might have been the maternal. Anyway, uh, my, my son claims that he is, with, with help of a friend in, 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 I think in Ukraine, has checked and that we could claim Hungarian uh, citizenship. I'm not sure I particularly want to claim Hungarian citizenship. <laughs> But again, given that I'm not too optimistic about the US at the moment, there would be something to be said. Uh, and similarly, I'm not very happy with California. California seems to be a very badly run state, but I've got a nice house. I've got an orchard full of fruit trees that I spent 25 years planting. Uh, one of them is a persimmon tree, which is just heavily loaded with persimmons at the moment, which is really a beautiful sight. So I'm pretty reluctant to move at this point, but uh, that's partly because of limited, you know, it. Capital investments depend on how long a time you've got to collect on them. Right. Uh, so, so Dave, yeah. uh, so Dave, you, you're also um, interested in, in medievalism, and I, I wanted to right. get your perspective on, you know, what are some things the lay people don't understand about medieval life that would, huh. would surprise them? That is not really life, but I suppose the biggest mistake is assuming that medieval kings were absolute monarchs that absolute monarchy is really a post-medieval invention. And that uh, the, the figure I remember seeing somewhere is that at some early date, the levy of Normandy, the number of knights that the Duke of Normandy uh, could call out was larger than the levy of France. Really? All right, Normandy was part of France, but the Duke of Normandy owed the King of France a certain number of knights. That wasn't the same as the number of knights that owed service to him. Uh, so that in general, I think the way I like to think of feudalism is that it's a system where the key resource is controlled far enough down so that the person at the top is a coalition leader rather than an absolute ruler. I and I think that applies to lots of systems other than the Middle Ages. I, as far as I can tell, the urban, machine, urban political machines in the U.S., say, around 1900, were really feudal. That, that makes sense. The critical resource was votes. The votes were controlled by local leadership. And therefore, the boss was not really an absolute monarch. He was the head of a coalition uh, of local, you know, ward bosses and such. And he had to please them if he wanted to stay in power. Uh, and I suspect that same pattern exists in a number of other contexts. But other than that, let's see, there are a bunch of sort of things people believe in the Middle Ages that are pretty clearly nonsense. Uh, I guess the one I, that most annoys me given my interests is the idea that medieval food was overspiced to hide the taste of rotten meat. And that's complete nonsense. To begin with, people who say that have never done any cooking from medieval recipes. And they therefore don't realize that with rare exceptions, we don't know how much spice they put in that medieval recipes, and there are exceptions, but as a general rule, medieval recipes do not include quantities, temperatures, or times. Interesting. It's a verbal description, you put in some of this, you do this to it kind of thing. It's the kind of description, if you actually cook a lot, and somebody said, I really like that spaghetti sauce, how did you make it? We just you probably good. wouldn't say two pounds of this and a teaspoon of this, all right? right. Uh, so it's that kind of recipe, and there the Islamic sources are a little better in that respect. They sometimes do give you the information, but the the my sort of standard story is there is a book called 215th Century Cookery Books, which was put together in I think about 1890 as a from a couple of medieval manuscripts, 
And the introduction to that book comments about the strong stomachs of our ancestors as demonstrated by the cinnamon soup on page such and such. And you look at page such and such and it's not a recipe, it's a menu. <laughs> so what he took as evidence of the strong stomachs was that somebody would put cinnamon in soup. And that tells you more about 19th century English cooking than it does about 15th century English cooking. That's right. Uh, so, so, but of course, it's also the case that, that it would be absolutely stupid to use spices to hide the taste of rotten meat for two different reasons. First, spices are expensive and meat is cheap. All right, right. the meat is produced locally. The spices are brought from, from India, roughly, depending which spice, but for long distance, some of them farther than that. And the second is that a cook who gets his employer sick is not going to last very long. Right. Uh, so, so that I guess that would be an example. A different one is the idea that medieval armor was so heavy. Interesting. That people couldn't move in it, that you had to be hoisted onto your horse with a crane, stuff like that. And insofar as there's any truth to that, it's not medieval. What's true is that late tilting armor, at a point when tilting was a sport, not warfare, Interesting. sometimes not all of the joints were articulated. So you couldn't walk in it. You just put onto your horse and but as far as what people actually fought in, uh, a squire is supposed to demonstrate how good he is by pole vaulting onto, onto, onto his horse at some point. I don't sure anybody could do it, but you, you at least. And, you know, I've done lots of uh, medieval stuff with other people and the people can, you know, run around in full plate with no particular difficulty. The sort of standard weight is about 40 pounds, which is less than a World War I or World War II soldier was carrying. Uh, and it's spread over your body, so it's easier to carry than a backpack. So that sort of set of ideas. Uh, what else? I think the idea that medieval serfs were tied to the land is at least dubious, depending a lot on when and where you you, you look. Uh, do no, who is it? I'm trying to remember who there's a very prominent French medievalist, no longer not not alive for a long time. Uh, who wrote French Rural Society, I think. And he has a comment that it's not until some fairly late date, like the 14th century or 15th century, does he see any legal references to serfs being tied to the land. And my, my theory, and this is really not based on evidence, but more on economics, is that what's going on is that preventing, collecting, collecting from your serfs more than what would be the market rent on land is hard because once you do that, the serfs have an incentive to run away and other lords have an incentive to accept them. Right. All right. You're talking about a situation where the effective government is like 10 miles across here, depending on where you are, but the royal governments don't have very much power. It's the local lord. Uh, and what, what the, my reason for thinking this is what's going on is that when you get uh, a, the, the, the Black Death coming in in the mid 14th century, what's the effect of the Black Death? It doesn't kill land, it only kills people. So that means that land some, suddenly becomes much less valuable and labor more valuable. And, and what do we observe? We observe there's suddenly a problem of runaway serfs. Interesting. Why is there a problem of runaway serfs? Because the terms of, 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 of the contract between the Lord and the serf are not continually negotiated. Those are traditional rules. They're not easily changed. So if I'm right, as of 1300, 
the uh, amount that a serf paid his lord was about what the land would have rented for. The land serf, the lord is controlling the land already. He's a landlord, among other things. Uh, by 1400, that same rate is well above that. And now you start having runaway serfs. And now you have lords trying to go to the royal authorities to get rules against serfs running away. So that's my reading of what happened. And that's not really coming from my medievalism so much as from my economic stuff. And I'm not sure I'm right about it, but I think it's a plausible interpretation uh, of the available history. What, what else can I think about? Uh, well, I mean, the, the I guess two historical errors, neither of which are made by anybody reasonably well-educated. One of them is the belief that people in the Middle Ages believed in a flat earth. Uh, in fact, there may have been people who did. There are probably some people now who did. But the orthodox position, what, what, what any educated person would have been taught was Ptolemaic astronomy. And Ptolemaic astronomy has a spherical earth surrounded by a set of nested crystalline spheres. We know they're crystalline because we can see through them with the moon and the planets embedded in them. Because you've got this problem, they can, they can do astronomy. They observe that the, the moon is going around well, how can the moon going around? They haven't, nobody's figured out gravity yet. Newton hasn't been born. So obviously, not obviously, but the not unreasonable conjecture is there is something, it goes around in roughly circles. So something spherical, the moon is embedded in it and it goes around. And similarly for other things. So it was, it was not a correct theory, but it wasn't an absurd theory. Uh, and connected with this particular is the idea that Columbus was the guy who believed in science and it was all the people who argued with him who didn't believe in science. That's exactly backwards. That everybody essentially knew the world was round. Everybody except Columbus knew how big around it was. <laughs> that uh, the argument was that given they had reasonable estimates of the diameter of the earth back in classical antiquity, somebody did a very clever experiment in which you measure the size of the earth and they got it. We don't know, there did some, some disagreement about units, but at least roughly right. They knew about how wide Eurasia was. All right, people had been across China, not exactly. You can subtract. Well, <laughs> think for a moment about what Columbus claimed he was doing. He wasn't going to the new world, he was going to India. Suppose that the American continent hadn't been there. What do you think happened to Columbus's expedition? The Pacific is, a, he barely made it to the new world and the Pacific is a whole lot wider than the Atlantic. That's right. They would have died. He would have died, you know, somewhere around Chicago, I suppose. <laughs> uh, Chicago had been there maybe probably earlier than that. Uh, so he, what Columbus had done was to fudge up the num both of the numbers in such a way that he could convince himself and presumably his patrons that he could actually get there. Uh, now, it's possible that he actually knew the new, nor, the, the, that the new world was there. That is that he may, there, there's various arguments that have been made suggesting that there was evidence from fishermen who had made it to the cod fisheries area just east of, of, of Canada. Uh, and very, and of course we know that the Norse had made it to the new world. He might conceivably have picked up something about, about that experiment. So maybe he knew he was just lying. Uh, in order to get somebody to fund him. Uh, but at least so far as you can tell in terms of his position, he was the anti-science one and, and the, his critics were the <laughs> science ones. So that's one of the sort of irritating bits of historical misinformation you get. And I'm sure there are lots of others. I, I, right. I would have to think more about, about what those are. But 
my working assumption is that people in all times have been about equally smart. And we have some advantages. We know a good deal more than people in the past, but you shouldn't base your assumption on the assumption that all of them were idiots because it's not very likely. Right. And going along with that, do you think governance is in general better or about the same as it was, say, the medieval period or over time? Yeah, that's a hard question. The fraction of the national income collected by the government is much higher than in most past societies. Right. But that's because I think that's because at our level of government consumption, the population would have died of starvation until I see that is basically uh, output went up a whole lot in the last few hundred years and it therefore became possible for the government to seize more and the rest of it still to survive. Uh, but beyond that, I'm not sure there's a simple answer. Let me give you one, one bit of evidence that we're worse off. And that's from Adam Smith. Adam Smith has a long discussion of possible forms of taxation. And one of the forms of taxation that he discusses is an income tax. And he says that that's not one of the, that's not a viable option. That's not doable. <laughs> Why isn't it doable? Why, in order to have a tax on either income or wealth, you would have to have an inquiry into the private affairs of individuals, not only once, but renewed every year and no free people would put up with that. <laughs> All right. So that's a respect in which things have gotten worse in terms of our standards. Uh, and he, he isn't arguing against taxing. He's just saying that's not one of the practical options. Uh, and, the, and he therefore concludes that if you really had such a tax, it would really depend on what the people imposing the tax, whether they liked you or not. Uh, not on what your income really was, because they couldn't possibly know what your income or your wealth really, he's considering both of those really was. Uh, so in that respect, things have gotten uh, have gotten worse, but in other respects, they've clearly gotten better. Uh, that, uh, and a lot, but many of the changes I think are really ultimately driven by technology, not by, not by ideology. That if you think about the status of women, that the fact that people sort of ignore is that until modern times, one profession uh, required nearly half the population, right? right? The profession of producing and rearing kids, which was a job, at, the producing part had to be done by women because uh, men can't bear children. Uh, and nursing had to be done by women. And given they were doing that, it wasn't surprising if they had most of the rest of the job. Now, it's true in past societies, which were much poorer than ours, women also did a good deal of work of other sorts, but it tended to be household production kind of work. Uh, so that gave you a sexual division of labor, which was really built into the biology. And what ended that was the combination of sharply lowering uh, infant mortality rates with the result that you only had to produce two kids if you wanted two kids instead of six or whatever the numbers were back then and moving a lot of what had been household production out of the house uh, as a result of things like washing machines and you know a whole bunch of technological improvements which raised the division of labor made things a lot cheaper and meant that that it was no longer a full-time job to be a mother and housewife uh, that freed up a whole bunch of labor that eventually results in women being lawyers and lots of right. other things uh, and we think of that as progress, and it, it certainly was progress from the standpoint of those women who would rather be a lawyer than a housewife, but it's not really progress for intellectual reasons. I think the intellectual arguments come second. They're secondary to the, to the technological ones. Uh, but 
But no, I mean, I would have said that size of government is worse in the modern world. Uh, other things, uh, there are certainly respects in which, in which we are freer than people of many times in the past. Uh, we have pretty complete freedom of religion, for example, which you certainly did not have consistently in the past. Uh, the, we have obviously a good deal of sexual freedom, which most past societies had less of. Uh, so things are better in some ways. Uh, I'm not a big fan of democracy. I don't think there are any good ways of running governments. Uh, probably the least bad system is benevolent dictatorship, but the problem is you can't count on having a benevolent and competent dictator. That there's there's Lee Kuan Yew and then there's, then who else? Yeah. Maybe Oliver Cromwell. Yeah, that's true, Cromwell. That that's is, I think point. probably Cromwell was a better ruler than the rulers before or after him, as far as I can tell. Uh, he was competent, as far as I can tell. Uh, but, but yeah, uh, yeah, no, there is a historical novel by Mary Renault, who was really one of the very good early historical novelists writing almost entirely about ancient Greece. And this novel, it's called The Praise Singer. Praise and the protagonist is a professional poet. He is a professional poet, one of whose poems has in fact survived. That's all we really know about the real character. And the poem that has survived is the epitaph uh, at Thermopylae. Uh, Stranger, if you come to Sparta, tell that here, obedient to the law, we fell. Uh, but he's the protagonist of the fiction, and the fiction is partly about tyranny. Because tyranny to the ancient Greeks was not a negative term. A tyrant was a popular dictator, good or bad. And in the course of that book, you see three different tyrannies. And the first one is a Greek island, and the tyrant is competent but not particularly benevolent. But it's clear that for him to live sort of the, to live high off the hog, his island has to prosper, so he's got stuff to grab. And the result is that when he, when he gets killed, things collapse, things go sharply downhill. The second one is Athens, and it's Athens at a point when Athens, the de facto ruler of Athens, uh, is a man called, I think, Pisistratus, if I remember correctly, who at least, as Renault tells the story, ha had been the younger lover of Solon, who, who gave the Athenian laws. And as he explains to the protagonist, who was a friend of his, uh, after Solon made the law, everybody was in favor of everything but one thing. Everybody wanted some one part of the law changed to favor him. Solon said, they can't make me change the law if I'm not here, and he left. They keep his law. I see to that, who could have given them laws they would like less well. So he's been kept honest by the memory of his dead lover. It's really quite a neat scene. And he's competent. And he does a good job of running Athens. And he dies. And he's succeeded by his sons. And for a while, things run on sort of momentum. But the sons are not the kind of person the father was. And it slides downhill. Uh, so I think Renault's view, I suspect, was that the best system of government was benevolent tyranny, provided you happen to have the good luck to have a good tyrant, but you couldn't count on having that. Uh, so I don't think there are any particularly good systems. Uh, and, you know, feudalism had some attractions. It was 
decentralized enough so that to some extent the lords are competing with each other and to some extent if one lord does badly people are going to flow out to another on the other hand people are a good deal less mobile than we are so so that was a, a limited kind of constraint uh, and so anyway i guess i wouldn't really say that governance is better or, or worse uh, and you'd have to look at particular examples Definitely. Uh, if you look at my book, Legal System is Very Different, you at least see a bunch of different patterns. Right. Uh, and those include some stateless systems. <laughs> and at the other extreme, they include Imperial China, which was a very strong state for a very long time. This was a system that lasted about 2,000 years with occasional interruptions when a dynasty collapsed until it got replaced by another dynasty. And that's a very interesting system to try to make sense of it. Part of the fun of the book really is, is first figuring out what happened and then figuring out why. Why? What is the reason? What's the internal logic that makes the rules what they are? Uh, so that for take one example from Imperial China, which is one of my favorite ones to look at. Uh, one of the, the stories we tell about oppressive regimes is that they try to compel children to betray their parents. In Imperial China, to accuse your father of a crime of which your father was guilty was a criminal offense by you. It was illegal to betray your parents. Why? And the answer, I think, is that at least by the late empire, they are ruling a population of several hundred million people, and they're doing it with a small elite of scholarly of scholar officials. And how do you do it? You subcontract the job. And the, who do you subcontract it to? Well, one of the main authority structures they're subcontracting to is the extended family. So you don't want to do anything that will reduce the authority of the people at the top of the extended family over the people below them, because they're the ones who are going to really make people behave from your standpoint. And there are various features of the law, if you look at them, all of which seem to be to fit the pattern that they are trying to design it to maintain that structure as, in effect, a substitute so that it was to reduce the amount that has to be done by the governmental structure. So that would be one example of something which is sort of intriguing. Uh, but there are lots of them. I mean, the book was a lot of fun. I, I, it was a course I taught every other year for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years uh, on legal systems very different from ours. And in the course of that time, I accumulated more and more stuff and my students did papers, so I got stuff from them. And the last year I taught it, my class would mostly consisted of Saudi Arabian LLM students. Oh, really? Saudi Arabia is pretty much the closest thing <clears throat> to actual Islamic law that still survives. And there's a lot of talk about Sharia and Islamic law, but it isn't really Islamic law. I mean, we know a good deal about what the traditional system was. <clears throat> and Saudi is, is at least partly that, although it's also got elements from modern legal systems. So I had primary sources in my classroom. And that was great That's fun. Discovered some things about uh, Islam. There was at least one point where my secondary sources from a good authority said something that apparently was not true. Oh, wow. Because it said that the following institution used to exist, but long ago vanished. And my students said, oh, no, no, no. The, the reason my last name is such and such is because that identifies which of these groups I'm in. These were clustered groups that had some common uh, legal obligation for each other, so to speak. Uh, so anyway, so that, that was quite interesting. Uh, the one of the students, almost all of them were male, but there was one, at least one woman whose mother was a law professor, a Saudi law professor. Oh, wow. And I had long talks with her. She was really very interesting. 
Uh, and again, trying to see how that system works. For example, uh, in Saudi Arabia, colleges are either for men or for women. And they take it seriously. A college for women has no males inside the building. Oh, wow. If, if, a, if they need to have a male professors teach class, it's done over closed circuit television. Uh, furthermore, in that system, there is no, no, officially at least, there is no socializing between unmarried men and women. That a restaurant will have a place for men, a place for women, and a place for couples. Uh, one result of that is that if her brother wanted a bride, it would be up to his mother and sister to find one for him. Oh, wow. Because he, would, he couldn't. He's not, he's not interacting with the, with, with the potential women. Now, they also have a system where you are basically marrying within your kinship group. So the number of candidates wouldn't have been very large. My guess from what she said was that if her, her brother wanted a bride, there would be only 10 or 12 potential women who were within that group of the right age and single. And then presumably her mother and his mother and sister uh, would get to know them, would decide who was a likely candidate. Uh, sort of related experience a long, long time ago, long before I knew this stuff. I ended up flying from Bombay to Sydney next to a woman who I got into a conversation with in the airport who was from Southern India. She was flying to join her husband who was a doctor in Australia and it had been an arranged marriage, arranged by their parents. And she was not a primitive person. She was an educated, intelligent woman who found our way of doing things just as weird as I found her way of doing things. <laughs> and, you know, it was clear that it was a viable set of institutions. As it happened, my marriage had broken up, my first marriage, and her marriage was going strong. So on our small sample, her system worked better than ours <laughs> did. Uh, it was clear that she could have vetoed. That is to say that the parents select the person and then they meet and have a chance to interact enough to see if they think they'll get along. But normally uh, they do. And that's, that's the way you do it. Uh, and that was really interesting, sort of seeing in, in the flesh, as it were, something that we are tend to reject as, oh, they just do that because they're primitive, stupid people. And that's not right. the case. Anyway, so the world is a very interesting place. This is one of the reasons I'd like to last another few centuries. Definitely. Uh, and, and I had one more question. I, I want to ask sure. Quinn, Quinn if he has another one. Uh, so cryonics, are you I have not signed up. Not I signed up? seriously Curious. considered very possibly I should be. Uh, but so far, I haven't been. And since I don't think I'm very likely to die in the near future, it hasn't felt like an urgent issue. But I've got at least one friend who has urged me to do it, and he may well be correct. Uh, Makes sense. The, I think the odds of it working are not very high, but the odds of the alternative working are even lower. Uh, exactly. Now, I should say, I'm not absolutely certain that there isn't any life after death. Uh, that's my guess. But I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people, especially a lot of atheists make, is to assume we understand consciousness. And we don't understand consciousness. I mean, it's all very well to say, yes, I'm software running on the hardware of my brain. But how come software is looking out, as it were? Right. How come there is actually a ghost in the machine, as somebody put it? And the answer is, I don't know. And, you know, it's still my best guess. And I, I just understand how it is that software can be like that. But maybe there is an immaterial soul and, you know, maybe God really exists. I think you, I don't think one should be as confident of these things as most, uh, most people who share my general view, view are. 
Now, partly that's because I have encountered mostly in, in writing some very bright people who clearly believe in stuff that seems like a fantasy to me. Uh, right. G.K. Chester and C.S. Lewis would be two obvious examples. Uh, but it's partly just because it seems to me that I have a, you know, I, I, I have explanations of sizable parts of the world, much more than people did a few hundred years ago. There are lots of things I don't understand. And uh, anyway, so uh, that, any other questions? Great. Quinn, do you have a, a, a uh, parting shot? I don't think so. I'm, um, I'm really thankful I got the chance to talk to you. I've learned a lot from reading your blog and reading your comments on Slate Star Codex. And uh, Good. Let us hope that we get Slate Star Codex back in the not too distant future. Yes, well, I'm going to check out the the new thing. I have it open in our, I typed it into Google so I wouldn't forget where it was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've been it's, missing that. It's not as good without Scott. And yeah. we don't have all of the good people. Deshawk has not showed up, or maybe he showed up briefly, but she's not there currently. Uh, Plummer is there and, and participating and a fair number of the sort of what I think of as the core group or star are, are there and hopefully more will drift in, but hopefully we'll get Scott back at some point and then we can go back to doing yes. it on Space Star Codex instead. That's right. Should be even better. All right. Well, this was fun. I enjoyed thank it. You. I like talking, as you can see. Yeah. Uh, well, 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 thank you, David. And where should people find you? Um, where should oh, they buy your books? Um, yeah. Yeah. Anything that is, else that, you'd like to mention? Sure. Uh, to begin with, you can, my website is davidfriedman.com. That's easy to remember. You have to have the extra D. If I had applied for the URL a few months earlier, I could have gotten it without it, but somebody beat me to it. And you have to know that Friedman is spelled I-E-D-M-A-N. That particular name has six different spellings that I know about. <laughs> uh, and mine is one of the more common, maybe the most common one. Uh, Beyond that, that has a link to my blog. Uh, my blog is called Ideas, and it got a lot less active some years ago due to Slate Star Codex, because why should I put something on my blog when I could discuss it with more interesting people by putting on Slate Star Codex? It got much more active, again, after Slate Star Codex shut down, slowed down a little bit because of uh, locks showing up as an alternative, but I have been posting stuff, and I probably we posting it again within next next week. Other than that, uh, if you go to my website, I think you find a list of, I think all of my books are, are, are listed there. They're all available by Amazon. Uh, my, most of my nonfiction was commercially published. However, my most recent one I self-published. I think self-publishing is great. It's a lot less trouble. Uh, and that's uh, legal systems very different from ours. And the third edition of Machinery I self-published after we couldn't reach agreement with the publisher of the second edition. Uh, some of my books you can read for free online. Uh, and again, if you go to my webpage, you will find the links that I tend to web a late draft so people can read that if they want to. Uh, that's true of legal systems. It's true of, uh, I think, almost all except Hidden Order where my publisher wouldn't let me do it. Uh, and my fiction, I don't, none of it can be read for free on, well, actually, Harold, my first novel, Bain has a free library, and I haven't checked, but you might well be able to read it there. If you want to listen to it, uh, I have my recordings of it uh, linked to my webpage, so you can do that for free if you like. You can also get it as an audio book from Audible, uh, which is probably an easier way of doing it, but 
we require you to spend some money. Uh, my second novel, Salamander, is going to be available as an audiobook very shortly. All of my stuff is available on Amazon. That's one of the great things about Amazon now. That's one of the ways in which the world's gotten better in my lifetime is that I can self-publish a book. I, there is nothing a publisher does that I need. I've got an editor in-house. My daughter is, an, is, a, is a freelance uh, online editor. I have friends who have been willing to design covers for me uh, and have done very nice covers for me. I think the best cover machinery I ever got was one I got by putting up a contest on my blog uh, and it ended up with a really nice cover. And my more recent covers have been done by a very nice lady, a Russian immigrant, one of the ways in which we have profited from that, uh, who I gather likes my stuff and is quite good at doing the kind of cover where I think she's not doing any artwork herself. She's just got a huge uh, sources of pictures and she arranges them to make pleasant effects. And that's, that works quite well. Uh, and Amazon means that I don't have to get into bookstores. All I got to do is put something on Amazon and anybody who wants it can read it, can find it, can buy it. So that's one of the ways in which things have improved a lot. And I no longer have to worry about publishers. The, my legal systems, I, I tried, I think maybe three or four of the top academic publishers, several of which had published books of mine before. None of them was interested in it, so I just self-published it. Uh, so it's a shame. Anyway. It's, a, it's an excellent book. So those are the, those are the places to to find it. Amazon, if you want to buy books, uh, I think all of my books are available as Kindles, and they're generally cheap as Kindles because I write mostly to get people to read my stuff, not mainly as an income source. Uh, most of my books are now available as audiobooks. Uh, my third novel is not. Uh, my third novel is a sequel to the second one, so you should probably read the second one first anyway and see if you like it. Second one has no connection to the first at all. Uh, my, my first novel was marketed by Bain as a fantasy, but it isn't really a fantasy. What it really is is a historical novel with made-up history. So there's no magic, there are no elves or dwarves, but there are societies that never really existed based loosely on real societies. There is a map which doesn't correspond to any part of the real world and so forth. Second novel is an actual fantasy. It was quite a lot of fun. It's a fantasy with scientific magic. It's a fantasy where the setting is largely at a college for training mages and it's happening about 50 years after the magical equivalent of Newton after the person uh -huh. who changed, who started, took the large steps towards changing magic from a craft to a science. That's and cool. that change is gradually working your way through. And part of the fun of that book from my end was trying to create the illusion for the reader that there was a real science there. All right, it isn't really there. If you went down three layers, there's nothing there. But I've got the top couple of layers as it were of a science. Uh, inspired in various ways by features of quantum mechanics, as it turns out. So I got some benefit out of my physics. Uh, and I think I do a pretty believable job there of describing such a thing, letting it constrain what happens in the plot. It's not like you can do everything. A, a fire mage is more like a match than a blowtorch. Uh, and that constrains things quite a lot and so forth. And that was a lot of fun. And then I did a sequel to that one called Brothers. Uh, which is the same setting a couple of years later, but is, I guess, more politics and less, uh, less about the, the magic and such. Uh, and I think Salamander is probably better than Brothers, but it's hard, to, it's hard, it's hard for me to evaluate my own stuff, uh, but I enjoy both of them. And 
uh, Super. brothers, the, the, the line on the cover, which is a, actually a, a, a Icelandic uh, line only in translation is bear is the back of, of a brotherless man. So insofar as there's a theme, it's the way in which personal relationships stabilize unstable political situations. That's an oversimplification, but you've got in that book, uh, I guess three sets of brothers, in one case, brother by mutual adoption, they're actually cousins, uh, and one brother-sister pair, where the fact that the members of the pair trust each other has a large effect on what happens in the story, as it were. So that's that that I that I didn't go in with that. One of the things I've discovered is that uh, no plot survives contact with the characters. <laughs> uh, so that's where the story went. I had a different idea, which is becomes a fairly minor part of the of, of the book when I started writing the book. Uh, but that's what it really ended up being about. That's great. Awesome. All right. Well, so, well, anyway, this was fun. I hope people who see it will want to read my books and will enjoy them. Bye bye. Thanks, David. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 